Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnicwear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicwear on Instagram at Picnicwear, and that's where, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at ShiftWheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room, all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. 
Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage retailer that is dedicated to bringing you those special vintage pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just an online store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 20% of all sales are donated to a new charitable organization each month, amplifying and supporting causes like food insecurity, racial justice, homelessness, and LGBTQ support. For the month of March, St. Evans is supporting the Chicago Period Project, an organization that empowers homeless and in-need people to experience their periods with dignity. This feminist grassroots organization distributes pads, tampons, underwear, and other critical menstruation supplies to local shelters, schools, and crisis support networks. Works. Your vintage purchase from St. Evans supports a small, women of color run business while giving back to the collective community we're all a part of. New Vintage is released every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's at where St. Evans. Shop vintage. Do good and wear St. Evans. Blank Cass, 
or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that uh, has major vegan leather burnout. Seriously. I'm your host, Amanda. This is the 60th full-length episode of Close Horse, which feels pretty major. And as always, this episode is full of action. The main event is the final installment of my conversation with Rebecca and Tia of Old Flame Mending. We'll be talking about sewing machines. Uh, Rebecca has some good recommendations for you. Halloween costumes. Tia is an expert there. And their hopes for both the future of their business and the world as a whole. Before that, Gabriella and Tonus and I will be debunking all of the myths there are so many out there regarding raising the minimum wage. But first, let's take some calls from the hotline. Now, if you're not following Close Horse on Instagram, you should. But if you aren't, then you don't know about Vegan Leathergate a few weeks ago, aka the week I almost quit both the podcast and Instagram. So, you know, if, if you're familiar with the gram, you know that I post a lot of like graphics with just some words, right? I said, vegan leather is plastic, which is in fact 100% true. Now, I will tell you, I posted something similar last year and months later, I still occasionally receive nasty messages about how I deserve to be tortured and murdered for, I don't know, telling the truth about vegan leather. I Essentially, the feeling is that if I am speaking against vegan leather, then I'm speaking for animal cruelty, and that is 100% not not true, and that's not even the binary that exists there, right? Being anti-vegan leather doesn't mean pro-leather by default, and in fact, I'm not into either of them, and I would just say skip it and find something else, right? For this particular round, I had to turn off commenting, which feels terrible to me. That's the kind of stuff that like shady influencers do. And that is 100% not what I'm about. You know that building the community is so important to me. And that means having open communication and dialogue with everyone. You know, most podcasts don't respond to DMs, but it's important to me that I be a real and honest person with you. And that's also why I make myself vulnerable both here on the podcast and on Instagram by sharing my real experiences and stories in the hopes that putting a human face on these ideas will change some minds and empower you to be a part of this movement. And to also just like normalize all the things we've stigmatized, right? <laughs> so having that open and direct communication is so important to me. You know, I also had to block someone who was not only harassing me via DMs, 
but also other members of our community who had just like commented on the post. And that that is completely unacceptable to me. Life is stressful enough for all of us. We're all putting ourselves out there because we believe in this mission we're on. And I'm not going to allow anyone in our community to be bullied like that. I have no tolerance for it, period. I also have to mention that I received more than 1,000 messages in a span of about 12 hours with questions and opinions about vegan leather, which I answered individually. I mean, of course I did, right? But that did eat up an entire day and night of my life. I also received so many positive, encouraging, supportive messages from all of you, and I'm so grateful for that. I think if I hadn't heard from all of you, I probably would have quit that day because it's not as if I doubted my stance on vegan leather being plastic because I stand by that 100% and I will continue to repeat that until there is a better option out there. But the vulnerability that I felt from the constant influx of like hate mail and people trying to pick me apart and just all of that stuff, it was it was a lot, you know? I'm, I'm not a person who wants to be famous. So it was really, really, really hard. Nonetheless, this is how passionate I am about revealing disinformation and greenwashing. You know, when I started Close Horse, I didn't know that's the mission that I was going to be going on. Um, but it turns out it is, and it's really important to me. And when I look at something like vegan leather, it's just almost kind of like it's the best example of the way greenwashing has invaded our lives. I like to joke that someday they'll be teaching MBA students about vegan leather as the most successful rebrand of all time. After all of this went down, I shared a full rundown of vegan leather in the Close Horse Podcast Instagram stories, and it still lives in the bio there. It's the first section of Save Stories, so please go back and check it out. And Carrie, who you know is the executive editor of CloseHorse.World, she and I are finalizing a full post about vegan leather that can hopefully be a resource for everyone out there. A great thing for you to reference, to share with your friends, etc. There's just, there's so much untrue, completely greenwashy info on the internet about, quote, vegan leather. So I'm kind of excited to be a true, honest resource for information about it. It's really hard to find honest, truthful information about leather substitutes on the internet right now. I mean, I almost fell into a few greenwash traps during my research. There's just so much untrue marketing info being spread across the internet about leather substitutes. Now, I'm going to review everything I've posted thus far about vegan leather and also discussed in my Instagram Live a few weeks ago. And then hopefully, we won't have to talk about it again. Although, if you have additional questions, please call the hotline because I bet other people have the same questions too. Once upon a time, so-called vegan leather was called pleather or maybe artificial leather, or man-made leather, or faux leather. And wearing it on your body or using it as an accessory signified that you were poor or cheap or classless, maybe that you had bad taste. But you know that I think taste is just a gross classist construct. So I don't care about faux leather from an aesthetic standpoint. But I cannot emphasize enough that with the rise of the term vegan leather, Retailers saw a way to rebrand a material that was cheap and profitable, but previously 
largely unpopular. I actually saw this happen during my own career in fashion, which is kind of (laughs) wild. But that's why I feel like I can speak confidently about vegan leather. In the early aughts, pleather, whatever you want to call it, was a no-go. Like occasionally it would work in bags and wallets, but even fake leather shoes were hard to sell unless they were incredibly inexpensive. Then customers wouldn't care. But selling a pair of faux leather shoes for like $100, good luck. No one was going to buy it. Pleather clothing wasn't even an idea because generally it was just considered so cheap and bad taste. And to be fair, it's not very breathable. It makes you smelly. It absorbs smells really intensely. And I mean, well, there are like a million other reasons why, but they all come back to the same thing that pleather, vegan leather, if you will, is plastic. So We were not buying faux leather clothing. It just was not even an option, not even jackets. We just never even talked about it. We were like, no, no, and no. I found a pleather jacket with fringe at a vendor showroom. And, you know, I have to say it it looked good to me. I thought it would be a nice and affordable addition to our festival marketing. And it looked very realistic. It wasn't too shiny. It didn't look too thin. It was fringy. It fit right in with the aesthetic that was like most important for festival at that time. My boss, however, was like, oh, hell no, no one will buy a pleather jacket. You're not buying that. But I convinced her to let me buy 50 units because I just felt like there was something there. Now, as we handed off all of our samples to, you know, creative for the photo shoot and copywriting, I said, please do something special with this guy because if it doesn't sell, I'll never be allowed to buy anything ever again that I really want. You know, when you're a buyer, this is the thing that literally worries you, that someone will take away your freedom, if you will, to buy what you want to buy. And instead, you'll have to listen to your boss on everything. That's like a nightmare to be micromanaged with your buying decisions. Well, the copywriter did something genius. She, rather than calling it pleather or faux leather or anything else in the copy on the site, she called it vegan leather, which we all kind of laughed because we were like, okay, yeah, I guess technically plastic is vegan. So is water. I mean, we were all, we all had a great laugh about this, but it sold out the day it launched. This was the beginning of massive vegan leather jacket programs at my job. I had found the initial vendor who made it. We worked on a bunch of exclusive development with them. I found other vendors. We figured out where the, like the factory where this faux leather was coming from. Soon I was developing skirts, shirts, pants, dresses, and all of it was selling like hotcakes. Like just, you couldn't make it fast enough. Well, why? Because the average person knows that veganism is good for the environment. They assume vegan leather must also be good for the environment. And if we as a cool brand are selling it to them and saying, hey, it's vegan leather and look how good it looks, well, that's just license to buy as much as you want and throw it out as fast as you buy it, right? The first question that I get from anyone who messages me on Instagram about vegan leather is, is vegan leather really plastic? So there are two main types of faux leather. There's PU, which is polyurethane, and PVC, which is polyvinyl chloride. Now I know you're saying, Amanda, but what about cactus leather? What about mushroom leather? What about pineapple leather? We'll get to that. But I'm going to tell you, 
PU and PVC, that's like 99% of the faux leather products that you see out there. It's cheap. It's reliable. Customers keep buying it. It's out there. You know, like this is what it is. PVC is plastic, okay? And it requires a plasticizer called a phthalate to make it flexible and soft. And phthalates are bad news. They've been linked to a lot of health issues. PVC also requires petroleum and large amounts of energy to produce it. So, of course, it is reliant on fossil fuels. Oil is a major component of all plastics. During the production process, so like in the factory when they're manufacturing this PVC, major carcinogenic byproducts are created that are called dioxins. They are toxic to humans and animals and pretty much everything else. And dioxins remain in the environment long after PVC is manufactured. When PVC ends up in a landfill, which is pretty much inevitable because it's not recyclable, it does not decompose and it can release dangerous chemicals into the water and soil. PVC is also even incredibly toxic for the wearer. There's been a lot of research that it kind of constantly releases carcinogenic fumes, basically for its entire lifespan. So you're like, okay, well, why is anybody using PVC? Because you just told me it's one of the most common. Most companies have moved away from this, but Matt and Nat, which is a pretty well-known, pretty large vegan bag and shoe manufacturer, does still use it because it has a more premium feel. And in fact, I was shopping for roller skates this week, and all of the so-called vegan or ethical leather styles, which just about every skate brand was selling, very few of them actually even had real leather. Not that I was in the market for that. I just was noticing this. Every skate brand was using PVC in their so-called vegan leather skates. So PVC is still pretty widely in use. And specifically, you often see it in handbags, wallets, and shoes because it's kind of thicker. It's got a more shoe bag weight to it. If you saw it side by side with PU, you would get it. PU, polyurethane, is the more common option because, well, for one, it's cheaper, but it's also thinner. It feels more like something you would wear as clothing. It is less toxic than PVC, but in the same way that, you know, vaping might be slightly better than smoking, it's still not great. Polyurethanes are in a class of compounds called reaction polymers, which includes epoxies and polyesters, which we know by now polyester is plastic. So polyurethane, like all plastics, can take a lot of different forms. Like, you know, when you know that almost all of these come from the same origin fibers, it kind of blows your mind to realize that the same fibers are creating both a plastic water bottle and maybe the dress you're wearing. And it's kind of similar when you talk about PU faux leather because once again, it's the same fibers, but also those same fibers are used for you know foam seating and insulation panels, spray foam, lots of foam, all kinds of like mechanical belts and glue, of course. And of course, our good friend spandex is also made from the same fibers. You know, plastics are plastics, right? PU is less durable than PVC and more prone to peeling, which also makes it less desirable for shoes and bags. If you've owned a faux leather jacket that started peeling, then it was probably PU. It has a much shorter lifespan. And once again, it's not biodegradable. So the irony there is it's not going to last you, the wearer, for a really long time, but it's definitely going to sit in the landfill for centuries. 
PU is specifically vulnerable to moisture. So if you have a PU jacket, pants, shoes, whatever, you want to preserve them for as long as possible. So keep them dry. Avoid wearing them in the rain. If someone spills a drink on you, dry yourself off immediately. Don't store it in a steamy bathroom or a damp basement. Make it last. One thing that people reach out to me a lot, it's like a genre of question, I would say, is I own XYZ thing that's made of plastic. Should I throw it out because it's bad for the environment? And I'm like, no, no, you need to hold onto it and care for it as long as possible because the most sustainable option is caring for what you have. So if you own PU or PVC clothing, bags, what have you, just take care of them. Keep them dry, you know? Make them last for as long as as you possibly can. And oh yeah, you can't talk about climate change and pollution without talking about plastic because manufacturing plastics, like I said, not only requires fossil fuels as an ingredient, it also uses a lot of energy in the form of fossil fuels to actually drive the manufacturing process. So anything that is faux leather has a really high carbon footprint. Now, is that carbon footprint higher than the leather industry, like the animal leather industry? It's hard to say. A lot of people have done a lot of side-by-side comparisons. And I'm going to tell you, nothing is ever an easy right or wrong when we're talking about anything related to what we buy, especially when we're talking about plastics. Um, But I mean, I'm going to get to this, but maybe you just don't need either, right? Also, you know, when people ask me like, Amanda, why are you always harping on about plastics? Well, you know what? We don't actually know how long it takes for plastics to decompose. You know, I talk about that all the time on here, like, oh, it's going to be in the landfill for centuries, but plastics haven't been around long enough for us to actually know. Remember, they popped up about 70 years ago. That's not even a full century yet. We can only guess based on controlled tests that it takes somewhere between 400 and 1,000 years, but it may be longer. After all, oxygen is a big part of decomposition. Think about how it rusts up metal even. And stuff buried in a landfill doesn't get any oxygen, which the moment I realized that, I was like, oh my God, obviously, right? I mean, these landfills are super deep. The only stuff getting any oxygen is at the top, but we're throwing more stuff in there all the time. So even something that was partially decomposing because it was getting some air is going to stop. So even naturally biodegradable things, you know, like food, for example, or, you know, cotton clothing, don't actually rot the way they're supposed to. It takes a lot longer and the process is a lot weirder. When plastics break down, they release all kinds of toxic chemicals into the soil, the air, the water, and they also release methane, which is not only a greenhouse gas, but it's also highly flammable. It's like It's actually known to become explosive when it mixes with oxygen. Remember a few episodes back when I talked about that mountain of clothing in Ghana literally exploding and burning to this day? That's methane. Another question that I got a lot, is faux leather recyclable? Well, the answer is no. And the long answer short is that because it's complicated, you know, recycling has to be easy or it doesn't happen at all. We talked about before about how like blends, fabric blends that might be like a wool poly blend or something like that, they're really challenging to recycle because you have to separate the fibers. 
faux leather is even harder because it seems like it's one big sheet of material, but it's actually multiple layers of different compounds that you really can't separate. Many garments, so most like your jackets, your pants, that kind of thing that are faux leather, are a softer polyester backing that is coated with layers of PU and then maybe a shiny protective coating, although sometimes that PU is enough of a coating. Shoes and purses are a more rigid, often plastic backing coated with the same layers of chemicals. And you can see this if you have ever had like the lining in your faux leather jacket rip, you can see that backing inside underneath the lining. You can also see it inside faux leather shoes. This is actually why that material tends to peel because it's so many thin layers. Ironically though, these layers cannot be separated for recycling in the same way, like I said, that it's difficult to recycle fabric blends, although this is way harder, right? Currently, faux leather can only be shredded and downcycled, which means, you know, used for something like for stuffing or padding. Now, here's where you're saying, okay, Amanda, but what about pina tacks and the apple leather and the mushrooms and the cactus and all of that? I have to preface this by saying, you know what, I'm not here to shit all over all your excitement about these other plant-based faux leather alternatives. Like, I want one of them to be good. I want to say, hey, everyone, go buy this. But it doesn't, it doesn't exist yet. And you know, I I actually won't buy new leather or vegan leather, but I would buy the heck out of any of these if they were actually everything that their greenwashing hype said they were. The most promising option is actually made of mushrooms, and it's in the very early stages, so it's not widely available, although the latest I heard is that products were coming out this year from like Stella McCartney and Lululemon, so we'll see. It's still early in the year. Unfortunately, the other options out there, like Pinatex, the one made of apples, I can't even remember what that was called, all these, all these other miracle vegan leathers they all contain plastics, generally PU, because they need that coating to stabilize the entire material and make it somewhat durable. So any items made of these materials are not biodegradable. To me, then, they're not an option. Okay, so let's, for example, talk about Pinatex, because this is the one that people reach out to me about the most, and it seems that they must have the most successful genius marketing team out there. Pinatex contains a plastic. It's called polylactic acid. It's a thermoplastic polyester. So you're thinking like, well, that sounds better. Bioplastics seem organic or something, right? Well, actually, it's way more complicated because they're still energy intensive to create. They divert actual food that could be going to people to making plastics, and they're not easily recyclable and biodegradable. Now we're going to put a pin in this bioplastic talk because it's important to a phone message I'll be getting to shortly. But in summary, bioplastics, not that great. Also, heavily greenwashed across the internet. Now, in the midst of all of this vegan leather brouhaha, someone asked me about so-called cactus leather, a leather substitute made of cacti. Well, you know, I did a bunch of reading and it seemed to check out as a great biodegradable plastic-free alternative to pleather or real leather. But something about it didn't seem right to me because I know the challenges of making a faux leather without plastics. 
that plastic coating or base layer or both depending on the variety, like I said, that gives it a level of durability and water resistance. It also gives the synthetic materials a leather-like look and feel. You know, like that sheen. That's the best way I can describe it. So I went deeper on my cactus leather research and guess what I discovered? After swimming through a sea of fawning articles about this miracle material that seemed to actually be word for word regurgitating some sort of press release that the cactus leather people had put out there, I began to see a recurring phrase that I had missed the first time around. And that phrase was partially biodegradable. I was like, wait, what? Insert like the, to- the record just skipping and scratching right here, like kerch. After some further digging, I discovered that cactus leather has a PU, which is polyurethane, resin top coat, just like every other leather substitute. Now, the phrase partially biodegradable might seem like NBD, like what's your problem, Amanda, let me buy my cactus leather, but your stretchy jeans are also partially biodegradable. They just leave behind a strange skeleton of plastic elastin fibers, which I've posted previously in stories, and you can Google. The photos have been going pretty viral. They're not my photos. I'm reposting them from someone, too. They're chilling. They're Seeing those photos made me realize how much of our stretchy jeans are actually plastic versus actual fabric, okay? Really disturbing to me. Well, you're probably asking why aren't there better options in faux leather right now? I mean, we know the mushroom one is in the works, but it's not out there, and you're definitely not going to go find it at Zara, for example, right now, right? Well, this is actually the easiest question of all for me to answer for you because the current incarnation of faux leather is cheap and profitable for retailers. I mean, it's so much cheaper than leather. It's so much cheaper than even a nice fabric. And they're selling it like crazy. Customers aren't demanding something better, so why would they go out and try to find it? Secondly, plastics are actually a huge business for the oil and gas industry. Like I mentioned, you need the oil as an ingredient. You also need to use it to generate the energy to manufacture the product, right? Just going to reiterate it again. I feel like it's important to say this as much as possible. Plastic is made from fossil fuels. And as cars have become more fuel efficient and we've all been carpooling and driving less, taking public transportation, you know, there's more clean energy out there. The oil and gas industry is becoming more and more dependent on selling us plastics to keep those profits high. Those plastics include polyester clothing. They include so much of our food and personal care products coming in plastic. And these plastics include faux leather. There's not any money to be made for this massive industry with all the lobbying power from petroleum-free products. And of course, we're not demanding better either. So it's not even like they have to, you know? According to a 2020 market report from Infinium Global Research, which is a reputable source used by both journalists and industry experts, Market research has indicated that the market for vegan leather will reach up to $89.6 billion by 2025, which is a compound annual growth rate of almost 50% over the period of 2019 
to 2025. Now that's some major math talk, so I'll just say it like this. That is some crazy growth, okay? That shows that it is going strong. More and more people are buying it. It doesn't help that like a lot of the fast fashion brands last fall, and I'm also including Aritzia in this because I saw those faux leather pants on everyone on Instagram. All of the retailers said together, leather dressing is a trend, but when we say leather dressing, we mean faux leather, we mean plastic. There was so much of that everywhere. I mean, when I, the last time I went to market as a buyer before the pandemic, it was to look at fall, the fall that just happened, and everybody, no matter what their price point was, had a rack of faux leather clothing. So last year was major for it. It will be interesting to see what happens this year. You can find this research about the size of the vegan leather market just by Googling Infinium vegan leather market. So check it out. Conversely, so we already know, okay, vegan leather is blowing up. It's been growing 50% year over year. The global plastics market is only growing 3% per year because we've kind of maxed out on a lot of plastic stuff, right? So better make some more vegan leather so we can keep those plastics profits high. Retailers do realize that there is massive sales and marketing opportunity here because vegan leather has this green marketing angle, which we know is not true. But like, once again, people hear vegan, they hear eco-friendly. And it's also super inexpensive to make, unlike a lot of other more sustainable materials. Also, I'm just going to say this. We do not live in a binary of vegan leather or leather leather. In fact... There are many other materials out there that can be a substitute for leather products and things you actually need. It doesn't have to be a vegan leather or leather leather choice. It can be neither. I'm a big fan of waxed canvas. For most of the aughts, I lived in very rainy Portland, Oregon. I wore rain boots made out of rubber to bike to work, and then I changed into my canvas shoes indoors. I also recognize that shoes are tough if you don't want leather, you're kind of stuck with vegan leather in a lot of instances, you know, if canvas isn't your thing, especially. I too have struggled with this. You know, we call it the McCarty curse in my family and it's a twofold curse. One is that your hair is really ratty and constantly tangled and hard to make look nice. And the other thing is exceptionally large feet. So for me, secondhand shoes are almost always a no-go. So I have always had to buy new shoes with rare exceptions. And If vegan leather is your only option, uh, you'll know it's vegan leather because it will say man-made upper in most cases. Just take care of them. Like I said, keep them dry. Maybe don't wear them outside. If you're at a show and someone spills a whole beer on you, which has totally happened to me, go into the bathroom right away and dry it. And don't be mad at the person because, you know, like beer was made for spilling. We live in a world where faux leather is a fashion trend, where we are being sold literal plastic as throwaway fashion. My motivation for sharing this information, for educating you about this, is not about veganism. It's about how greenwashing has led to overconsumption of faux leather by people who aren't even vegan. They're just thinking it's a sustainable option based on the name. And let's be fair, retailers are selling it to us that way. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There is no fabric or material that allows us to shop, shop, shop. That includes vegan leather. 
And lastly, I want to say that I will no longer use the term vegan leather because it's just playing into marketing and reinforcing misinformation. I will either use the term faux leather or plastic leather going forward, and I would encourage you to do the same. Vegan leather is a term that was created by marketing. Let's get it out of here. Let's get rid of it, right? So now that I've broken all of this down, let's listen to our first message from Rita, aka Panty Witch. Hey, Amanda, it's Rita, aka Panty Witch again. And I'm calling about your uh, vegan leather is plastic. Uh, very interesting the response. I shared it on my stories and I got quite a few angry DMs um, being like, not all vegan leather is plastic. And <clears throat> pretty much uh, I said something about how I like leather versus vegan plastic. Normally I go for thrifted leather, but I think leather lasts longer. Um, and obviously vegan leather is plastic and it just breaks down and you can't take care of it. And I have leather that's been going strong since probably the 60s before any of us were born. Um, but I just wanted to talk more about uh, the whole biodegradable plastic thing. Furthermore, than just even vegan leather, um, I've been learning a lot more about biodegradable plastics. Uh, I've had people ask me about using biodegradable plastic for mailers. I use recycled uh shopping bags because they're there and they work pretty well but a lot of people have asked me why I don't just buy uh, biodegradable plastic mailers and one reason is I don't want to buy new stuff and the other reason is some of those biodegradable mailers are still plastic just because it means biodegradable doesn't mean it is going to naturally break down all the way it's just breaking down so you can't see it anymore and it seems like it's biodegradable some of the biodegradable mailers are made out of, like, hemp or corn or things that do break down, and that's awesome. Um, but some of those mailers that say biodegradable are just made of plastic that's going to break down into smaller microplastics. And I don't think a lot of people know this. Um, uh, again, greenwashing and, you know, hot phrases like biodegradable, sustainable, compostable, <clears throat> They don't always mean what we think they do. And so, yeah, I just wanted to share that bit. Sorry you got online bullied about the vegan leather thing. Um, some people just always have a bone to pick online. So hope you're able to recover from that and that you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Amanda. Bye. Thank you, Rita, for calling to remind us that we should never, ever, ever believe anything anyone who is trying to sell us something says. It's like, the most important role of life at this point, and to always look up the information before we buy. Of course, the average person does not have time to Google every claim that they read. So it's really up to us to be the sort of like conduits of information for those around us. So as Rita mentioned, a lot of these biodegradable compostable plastics are, well, not actually either. Man, this is like a, an episode of just bummers so far. <laughs> I mean, I guess they sort of are, like technically they are, kind of. I don't even know if technical is the right term here. The conceit of these biodegradable plastics is that they will break down easily in compost bins and even in the ocean. 
which ostensibly means that we can use these plastics with abandon and no longer worry about their impacts on the ocean. Like, I've totally gone to so many, well, okay, not recently, but in the past, so many shows and bars where the cups were those bioplastic ones made out of corn. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about, right? A 2019 report from the United Nations Environmental Program, the UNEP, revealed that biodegradable plastics rarely actually degrade. Dun, dun, dun. More bad news, right? Jacqueline McGlade, who is the chief scientist at the UNEP, said, quote, it's well-intentioned but wrong. A lot of plastics labeled biodegradable, like shopping bags, will only break down in temperatures of 50 degrees Celsius, which is 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Pretty hot, right? So essentially, these bioplastics will only properly decompose in under very specific conditions, like they will in most municipal, meaning your city, composting setups, but they probably won't break down in your own personal compost bin, and they definitely won't just break down on their own out in the wild. I mean, 122 degrees is very hot. The ocean doesn't become that hot. And while global warming does make some environments near this temperature sometimes, it isn't sustained long enough to decompose these plastics. The only real solution to the plastic crisis is reusing, recycling, proper disposal, and most importantly, using less plastic in the first place. Which, by the way, includes buying less brand new synthetic clothing, including faux leathers. Another problem with these so-called compostable biodegradable plastics is that they contain additives that make it difficult or almost actually impossible to recycle them. So they're they're kind of worse. Like let's let's revisit these bioplastics. So for one, most of them are made out of food products that could be feeding people like corn. Two, they don't actually compost in and biodegrade under normal conditions. And three, you can't recycle them because they have additives in them that prevent recycling. So if we were going to kind of do like, which is worse, plastic, plastic, or bioplastic, I think we'd have to go with bioplastic. And that that is a tough one because they're both terrible, right? So I use compostable mailers to send out Patreon gifts. And I haven't found a workaround yet because I've tried using regular manila envelopes. The pins ripped through and fell out. People were bummed. I also tried the dissolvable mailers and the same thing happened. It seems that those work best with non-sharp contents. So my ask is that you please reuse the mailers I send to you to send something else to a friend or family member. If your city already offers compost pickup, then you can throw the mailer in there. But there's just no good solution yet short of reusing them. And it sucks that there's not a better option. I mean, why isn't there? Well, because there's no financial incentive to do better right now. We have to demand it. The technology exists to make it better. I could see mailers being made out of mushrooms in the future too, to be honest. There's so much going on with mycelium technology. So maybe mushrooms are a big future here. There won't be a good alternative until companies realize we expect and want better. It's the same thing with faux leather. And we won't be giving them any of our money until they do better for us. Okay, my next message is also related to Vegan Leathergate, and it's from Elise. Hi, Amanda. This is Elise. Um, I just wanted to send 
a message to weigh in on the really dramatic vegan leather conversation going on on Instagram. Um, Just a warning, I'm really bad at talking on the fly, so some of my points are pre-written down. Um, But in any case, um, I really don't understand these really nasty responses at all to the the vegan leather conversation. Um, Like, the alternative to buying vegan leather isn't buying real leather. It's not buying either. <laughs> like, I don't understand why people feel they need leather products, real or fake, at all. Like, <laughs> just give it up. <laughs> we can live without that look. It's not a big deal. Um, not every animal product demands a suitable art alternative. And if people really can't live without wearing something that looks like leather, as far as I'm concerned, they're not really following the principles of veganism anyway, because they're showing this blatant disregard for the environment just so they can look a certain way. Um, This also kind of reminds me of like certain vegans who um, really kind of stubbornly rely on alternative animal products for food. Um, certain ones like almond milk, palm oil, certain kinds of imitation meat uh, that are almost worse for the environment um, when the solution to that is just to give them up and accept that maybe you have to use a non-dairy milk that you like less or not eat certain kinds of meat. Um, You're not entitled to like uh, an alternative for everything that you don't want to consume Um, So it just seems really short-sighted to me and pretty entitled, uh, which is a a shame because I feel like the people who would be, you know, most up in arms about the, the really terrible environmental impact of fake leather are the people who claim to care about the environment the most. Um, So I really don't understand it. Like if, if you don't have a suitable leather alternative, like it's not a big deal. You just don't get to wear leather or fake leather. It's not like, it just baffles me that, um, that people feel like they have to have something that looks like leather. Um, all right. Well, I hope that was coherent. I love your podcast and I listen to it obsessively and I really appreciate all of your guests and everything that you do. So, um, thank you. And I hope that again, this message was coherent. All right. Bye. You know, I think Elise is so right here, and I hadn't thought of this before, but a lot of the vegan alternatives to not vegan foods are highly processed and really tough on your digestive tract. I have actually learned this lesson the hard way when decades of veganism exacerbated my celiac disease to a whole litany of complications, including an infection in my small intestine for probably about 10 years. Just so much misery. I'm doing a lot better, but it meant giving up tofurkey and vegan corn dogs and daya and tofuti cream cheese and all of these other things and essentially revisiting how I cook and eat. It goes without saying that the energy and science required to manufacture all of these fake meats and dairy products probably isn't super environmentally friendly either. And of course, a lot of processed foods, vegan or otherwise, come in a lot of packaging often plastic. So these are all good things to cut down on if you can, right? Sometimes you just can't, and that's okay too. I know all of this can feel discouraging, but remember, we're after progress, not perfection. There's no easy 100% perfect solution for any of the problems and decisions we face right now. 
I'm just trying to do my best too. I'm on this journey with you. Obviously, I'm really stressed about these compostable mailers. I've been stressing about it for months and I just haven't been able to find the right solution. But I also know it's my best option right now. That said, I'm working as hard as possible to rid myself of other plastic in my life. And you know, I'm proud to say that Dustin and I have made a ton of progress. Our recycling bin rarely contains plastic at this point. You know, we switched to shampoo and conditioner bars, which made a huge difference because we actually both have a lot of hair and we were going through a lot of bottles of conditioner. We buy cleaning product concentrate in glass bottles from Grove Collaborative. I even make my own yogurt because the plastic containers were a pain point for me. You can actually make your own yogurt very easily with either dairy milk or nut milks. You just have to buy the right kind of cultures to get it started. And if you have questions about this and how easy it is to do it at home, please reach out to me and I'll tell you because you don't even need a special yogurt making device. You just need an oven with a light bulb in it and you can make your own yogurt and save so much plastic, right? We also reuse every plastic bag that comes into our lives. I'm like a depression era Nana over here with a wash line of drying plastic. I've switched almost entirely to skincare stuff in glass bottles. We carry reusable straws and utensils in the car for impromptu road meals. I mean, we're working so hard, but you know what? There are still things that I can't change. Like for example, my prescriptions come in plastic bottles. I'm not gonna stop taking my medications, so... I just have to continue to do my best and not to be too hard on myself. And we're not set up for success for this stuff. Not right now, not in the world we live in in 2021 where there's even more plastic than ever because of the pandemic. That's why we need to work together as a group to get the changes we want and need. There's so much power in numbers. There's so much power in supporting one another, you know, sharing. Like if I showed you how to use, make yogurt, you know, like sharing our knowledge and our wisdom and our best practices and educating one another and kind of crowdsourcing the solutions to these problems, that's why we're all here, you know, to help one another. Thank you so much for calling Elise and Rita. And for the rest of you, if you ever have a question, a comment, a thought about consumption month or plastic or whatever, you can call the Close Horse Hotline at 717 717- 925-7417, or you can send me an email at closehorse.world. Okay, well, speaking of the changes we need, next I'm going to talk with Gabriella Antonis. You know her, you love her. She's a regular around here about something important to both of us. This is something we talk about constantly offline, raising the minimum wage. You know, I thought we recorded this like a week ago. Today, when I was writing the script to record this episode, I thought I would need to write some additional notes to introduce this. But I have to say, we were super thorough in our convo. So let's just get right into it. Everyone knows your voice by now. But you know, just as a reminder, in case it's like a new listener. Hi, new listener. This is Gabriella Antonis. (laughs) (laughs) I like that you particularly address them. So welcome. Gabrielle and I are going to talk about something that we're pretty passionate about that we kind of just like, we want to debunk some myths around it. And that is increasing the minimum wage to $15. I was sort of inspired for us to record this conversation after Gabriella had a fight with someone on Instagram about it. <laughs> I was like, time, send them this information. So I, I think based on the conversation you had and just the stuff I hear and see all over Twitter that people are so confused about the minimum wage and there's just like so much 
dumb, antiquated propaganda against it. And I thought it would just be good for us to dispel all these myths because I guarantee anyone who's listening to this, if they have a conversation with someone about raising the minimum wage, people are going to say all these things to them because they see it constantly, you know? So I thought we'd get things started with a tweet from, like, my number one best friend that I've never met in real life and who doesn't know I exist. And that is Robert Reich, who is an economist. If anyone's listening to this and you know Robert Reich, could you please introduce us? Because I just, like, want to hang out, talk about economics with him. Like, he's my, he's my guy. Uh, he said, if wages had kept pace with productivity gains since 1968, the current minimum wage would be more than $24 an hour. Instead, it's been stuck at 7.25 since 2009. Wage theft is the real looting in America. Do you follow Do you follow him on Twitter yet, Gabriella? I do, and I see him on Instagram too. I also <laughs> would love to meet him. I know, right? It's like it's like it's it would be a dream come true. I feel like I would like cry. You know, one time I saw a Lana Del Rey show, and people were sobbing when she touched their hand, and I feel like that would be me if I met Robert Reich. <laughs> I, I remember I'm a loyal listener. I remember you know, you, you know, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're going to talk about some of the myths here. And the first one that I hear a lot is that the minimum wage was never meant to be a living wage. It's primarily for young people starting out. And the sub myth that I hear a lot is that only teenagers have minimum wage jobs. And of course, we know that is bullshit, right? Plenty of adults are making minimum wage. Um, Gabriella's going to talk about it in a few, but, like, people specifically who work in the service industry are making below minimum wage. And, uh, you know, restaurants and whatnot are relying on us as customers to pay the rest of those wages, which is stupid. Um, FDR, that's Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He, you know, is the guy who created the New Deal, among many other sort of financial policies and administrations that did not exist in our country before, but really created the social safety net that we, what we try to rely on now. It's not very reliable. He gave an address about one of his many economic packages. He explained that, quote, no business which depends for existence on paying less than living wages to its workers has any right to continue in this country. And I, yes, I agree. What the fuck? Right. I feel like. True. Right. And you and I, I mean, we've talked about this a lot offline is that there are like a lot of businesses that really rely on the social safety net to really care for their workers rather than them paying wages. And we'll, we'll name some names as we get to that. At that time, this was back in 1938, which was a very long time ago. His Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, it was part of the New Deal legislation. It set minimum wage at 25 cents. And he intended this rate to be more than a bare subsistence level, meaning a living wage. Somewhere along the way, we decided, and I'm not saying we, you and I, but like we, the United States, decided that the minimum wage was not a living wage anymore, that we would not even attempt to keep it that way, that it would be the bare minimum way to pay someone for their work. Uh, and it became sort of the hallmark of, I mean, it's, it's, the irony is not lost on me, all the jobs that were so like poorly regarded by society as a whole. And it turned out during the pandemic were most, the most essential jobs of all. Here we are paying people not even enough money to live off of. The next myth, this one's one of my favorites. I see people going off on Reddit about this all the time and everyone's like, okay, boomer, slow it down. 
raising the minimum wage will kill jobs. You know, that is like a myth that's been going on since about the 60s. Um, in 2019, the single most far-reaching study on the minimum wage examines 138 prominent state-level minimum wage changes between 1979 and 2016 in the United States. Like, this is the gold standard of minimum wage research. And they found that, quote, the overall number of low-wage jobs remained essentially unchanged over the five years following the increase. So what does that mean? Raising the minimum wage doesn't make jobs go away. <laughs> Using, yeah, I mean, right? It's like they used 40 years of data from around the country, and they found that no jobs were lost as the minimum wage went up. This is just like fear-mongering. Yeah, this myth doesn't make any sense. But this is like the first logical. thing people, this is the first thing people always say. They're like, yeah, well, there, kiss your job, goodbye. And I'm like, actually, as a person who works in the retail industry on the corporate side, I'll tell you, the more money people spend, the more jobs we create, and people can spend more money if you give them more money. Like, that's it, what it, everything says in the comments on, like, Robert Reich or Dan Price <laughs> at Dan Price Seattle. If you read his, that's all it is, is, like, yes. it's all those Republicans. Oh, gosh, don't get me started. And there, some of them apparently are reading some weird studies that were from, like, the 50s and 60s. And even the economists who wrote those are like, you know what? We were wrong. <laughs> so, you know, like, no one wants to move on. I mean, I get it. You just find the data somewhere that suits your purposes. But in this case, they're looking at stuff that's, like, 60 years old and was just based on, like, an imaginary model, not on actual real events. Um also, 70 years of Department of Labor data from 1938, when the minimum wage began, to 2009 do not show any correlation between minimum wage increases and job loss. So there you go. If someone tries to, you know, talk you out of it with that, we've already got proof that they're wrong. I just wanted to say, like, while we're getting this perspective of the time, Mind that, like, we haven't had any significant change in the minimum wage in about 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, it would have been $24 an hour if we were doing that. And some places, I feel like you sent this to me. It was, like, in Georgia or something. The minimum wage is, like, five fifteen. I mean, it is yes. bad. For context, I worked at a mall in high school, and I made $4.35 an hour. That was the 90s, okay? Like, this is... This is bad. Um, the next one, this one never makes any sense to me. And when I hear people throw this out on Reddit, I'm like, you're just, you just don't understand how things work. And that one is raising the wage will blow a hole in the federal budget and increase government debt. Because somehow people are thinking, I don't know, the federal government is paying, paying Walmart's workers. I'm not really sure where this one comes from. But a paper by UC Berkeley economist Michael Reich, not Robert Reich, Maybe they're related. That would be really cute, actually. Uh, it projects that if the Rage the Wage Act is fully implemented by 2025, it would, quote, have a positive effect on the federal budget of $65.4 billion per year, largely through payroll taxes, FICA, and other sources. And, I mean, the math here is very, very simple. When people make money, they pay more in taxes, Right. It would generate roughly $650 billion in government revenue over one decade. I mean, this is like a massive amount of money. Furthermore, you know, in this country, we spend a lot of money 
on government assistance, even though it's nearly impossible to get it. That just gives you an idea of how many people are living in poverty every day in this country and, while, while also working. And they don't give you enough of it. No, oh, that was garbage. I remember specifically, I, in the early aughts, was getting food stamps and um, daycare assistance because I was working full time. Um, I was working in a retail store. I made seven fifty an hour um, and somehow was supposed to raise a kid on that. It was really damn near impossible. We were really broke. But we got like $100 a month in food stamps, and that was very helpful. But what was really impactful is that I got 40 hours of free daycare every week. So that yeah. meant I didn't lose any money by going to work. I got a raise of a dollar to eight fifty. So that would have meant in a 40-hour week, I was making $40 more, right? I lost my food stamps, and I lost the daycare, which for at you know at a regular rate would have been like two hundred dollars a week. So crazy! Oh. Only a hundred dollars for a child is is insane because most states like give you like way more than if you were a single person without a child. Like, how can that state not recognize the people with kids anymore? <sighs> I mean, the daycare thing was more devastating for me. I was like, we can if if we have to live off of twenty dollars for the groceries a week. I'm very resourceful, but like the daycare thing, I was able to work out a situation with my babysitter because she was also just like really supportive, where I only paid her $2 an hour, but that was still $80 a week out of my pocket when I was probably bringing home after taxes, like 250 I mean, that was really, really bad. Very, very hard time. Um, raising the minimum wage lifts people out of poverty, and it reduces their reliance on these government assistance programs. Do I think the threshold for those programs should be higher? Yes, but as they exist right now, and I, oh, you know what I want to add is that in the early aughts, you have to remember that that was the George W. Bush administration, and they would do anything they could to get a single mother off of government assistance. Let me tell you, it was like they were on a mission because it was like all this like family values bullshit. You know, another study released earlier this month actually projects that if this Raise the Wage Act is implemented by 2025, quote, annual government expenditures on major public assistance programs would fall by between $13.4 billion and $31 billion. On top of that, like I said, we would have all this extra revenue coming in from income taxes. And the reality is that many millions of workers in the United States are paid so little that they need the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, a.k.a. food stamps, to get enough food to eat. Moving the minimum wage to $15 would annually save somewhere between $3.3 and $5.4 billion in SNAP funds alone. Because currently, taxpayer money actually subsidizes the low wages that employers like Walmart, Walmart being one of the big, the big guys here, but not just him, them, fast food, most big retailers, you name it, those people are probably not making a living wage. They rely on taxpayer money to subsidize the existence of those employees rather than paying them directly. So at Walmart, it is like legendary at this point that when you are a new hire in the orientation paperwork, they include applications for SNAP and Medicaid. That makes me so angry. But when I was working retail, more people I worked with than not were on SNAP for sure. It was It's really hard to get Medicaid if you're remotely healthy and working, but it's a little bit easier to get SNAP. I know that some Trump programs made that harder, but mm -hmm. if Walmart would just pay their employees in the first place, they wouldn't need it. Yeah, and all the tipped workers, but just like also, it's not like they're telling 
every business owner, like, we're going to flick the light switch, and then you have to go to 15. It would be by 2025, <laughs> and by then, 15 an hour won't be a living wage anyway. So no, it won't be. double what they're making now. Once again, it should be $24 right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super infuriating. I don't think it's going to solve a lot of these problems in the way – I mean – I'm assuming these economists, when they model this out, they are taking into account in, um, inflation and whatnot, but I still don't see how $15 is going to be a living wage in four years. We got to catch up, though. We're just so far behind. I know. I mean, yeah, yeah, but I've definitely seen people arguing on Twitter, like, well, it's not enough, so why bother? And I'm like, no, no, no. This, I mean, in states where it's 515, this is a it's mega Georgia. raise. Yeah. I mean, like, this is a big deal. So another one that I see a lot on Reddit is... And this one makes me laugh every single time because they always bring up the two same examples to, quote, prove their point. If you raise the minimum wage, robots will take your jobs. And every time I see a post about this on Reddit, it is the same thing. Someone is showing a photo from a McDonald's of those touchscreen ordering machines. And, like, they're like, see, they put those in because they're anticipating this increased minimum wage. And then someone will always jump in and be like, those were installed three years ago. Every single time. Also, people love to cite the self-checkout at grocery stores as more proof of this, which has also been around for about 10 years now at least. Um, And they also – there's this one photo that I swear to God has been going around on Reddit for a couple years now of, like, a weird robot, like, flagger at a construction site instead of a person. And everybody acts like they took this picture, but it's the same picture every time that came somewhere from the Internet. And (laughs) – it's like not proof of robots taking jobs at all. And some people will be like, well, no human wants to wave a flag all day anyway, so let's automate that job. <laughs> but a new study from Princeton did find that, quote, higher minimum wages are not associated with faster adoption of touchscreen ordering because these machines are really, really expensive to build and install more expensive than paying someone $15 an hour, to be honest. There's a lot of maintenance involved. You have a lot of customers who can't even use them. It's, it's just so silly. I, I love that it's always the touch screens at McDonald's. I mean, that's good. So hit them, hit them with the cold, hard facts when people come at you with these, like, very easy to disprove. Yeah. Arguments. I mean, that's the thing is, like, when we decided to talk about this, I was like, oh, it's going to be really hard to find the information. And it so totally is not. Like, you can definitely – argue someone out of this pretty easily. I mean, argue out, argue them nicely, but there are facts for all these things. So the next one that I hear a lot is if you raise the minimum wage, the cost of groceries and burgers and everything else we buy will skyrocket. And actually, there is zero evidence of that, period. A 2017 University of Washington study uh, kept tabs on prices of 106 items across six different grocery chains in the city before and after the wage went up, and they found the wage increase did not affect the price of food at all. Um, A study by the Upjohn Institute also found that price increases were, quote, much smaller than what the canonical literature has found, meaning, like, all of this speculation that prices go up from minimum wage, it turns out, is just not happening. Um, In fact, costs don't really creep up at all. What really happens is people buy more stuff and companies make more profit when minimum wage rises. The next one, this is my personal favorite because people act like this has happened already. If you raise the minimum wage, employers will just move their business somewhere with a lower wage. 
Well, guess what, everyone? That already happened in the garment industry and for just about everything else we buy. Because even a super low minimum wage, what is it right now? 515 in Georgia, 725 in other places. It was still expensive in comparison to paying someone pennies with little to no regulation overseas. And I would say, and not just I, but all of the economists, they say a majority of the minimum wage jobs that still exist in this country can't be outsourced because we're talking about child care. What are we going to send our kids overseas to be babysat? Uh, retail. Once again, you need to have someone there to help the customers. Uh, warehouses, same thing. They've tried to automate them as much as possible, but there is ceiling on that. Elder care. I mean, once again, what are you going to have robots come and take care of the elders in our life? Basically, anything that is low-level healthcare related also pays minimum wage, and you can't outsource that. You can't outsource the janitorial staff because how would you get someone from somewhere else to come and clean here? You know, it's like the outsourcing of jobs happened a long time ago, and it had nothing to do with our minimum wage. It had to do with the fact that there were countries that had an even, like, a microscopic minimum wage that made it even cheaper to go make there and still pay while you had to pay to ship it back over here, you know? It already happened. Yeah. <laughs> no fear mongering. Exactly. And if we were going to subscribe to that belief, then we would have to immediately just start paying everyone five cents an hour and maybe the jobs would come back, but probably not because we also have safety policies here, which they don't have overseas. Um, another one is raising the minimum wage will destroy small businesses. That's another one I hear a lot. And actually, you're probably not going to be surprised to hear this. Studies have shown that that is just not true. Many small businesses already pay more than a minimum wage. And as we said already, when people have more money, they spend more, which benefits all businesses. So the next one, this one has always really bugged me, Gabriella, and I'm glad we're going to talk about it, is that servers and bartenders receive paychecks on top of tips. And this really upset people. <laughs> yeah, I have to say about the last one you said that that's the one I feel like that people throw out first. And I think people are the most yeah. passionate about. <laughs> but I would go back to what FDR said. And if nope, any business who won't pay a living wage doesn't deserve to exist. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not a zero sum game. I, I, yeah. Like we, we talked offline about it being like the poors versus the poors. It's like, if other people think they can get by without it, um, like they, they like wanted to say the same when it would help everyone. And they, those are the same people that care about the economy so much. It's like, it would help the economy. Yeah, I know. People wouldn't be so broke. Interesting. I mean, this is a whole other episode, but like when we talk about like the Republican party and conservatives as a whole, like the economy is like their thing, you know, it's like what Mm -hmm. they want to justify everything yet with yet they would deny this minimum wage that would actually fuel the economy. Yeah, it's really counterproductive. Yeah, that's their bag <laughs> on also controlling women's bodies. <laughs> that's yeah, true, yeah. That. Those, are the, those, are the, those are the things, and, like, immigration. Okay, so I just want to say that in some states like Louisiana, servers are getting their tips from 2019 met from if their job at, like, a PPP loan. Oh, wow, like, They're that's still cool. getting paid. Yeah, with that as a reference, but just so everyone knows, the server wage hasn't been raised from $2.13 since 1991, and you never see that. 
like depending on what state you're in, you end up owing money. Some like I was a server in Baltimore, so Maryland, and then Philadelphia, like PA's tax amount, tax is high, like you end up owing money. So um, in 1991, at the time, the minimum for tipped workers was half of the overall floor of $4.25. Today, it stands at just 29% of the regular minimum wage, which is at $7.25 per hour. It's already well below its real peak value of 10.71 in 1968. I remember those when I was waiting tables. Sometimes I would get a paycheck for a negative amount. Yeah. <laughs> it's like okay if you don't have like state tax. Like if you're like in Delaware or Florida, it might not you might not get screwed over as much as tax time. But it's got to be updated. Like servers need a paycheck and their tips. Like because. Really, they're still making less than everyone else. So I don't. It's just this false narrative. I mean, what needs to happen is what's happened in most countries around the world, which is we eliminate tipping. You can still do it if you want to, but people are paid a good wage to wait tables. In fact, in many countries, waiting tables is a highly skilled activity that you can make a decent living from. You know, yeah. here it's like you are so dependent on tips. It's it's such a mess. It's like. I have waited tables a night when there are no customers and I'm really stressed out about how I'm going to pay my rent. You know, it's it's not a way that someone should have to live. And I think there is this misconception that, like, servers are just raking it in, and that's just no. not true. No one's getting rich off of waiting tables. And I also think, and I hate this, it allows, I don't know, it's like it it really messes up the balance of power where it lets mm-hmm. customers think, that, like, that server needs to do everything they want exactly how they want it on demand if they want to get a decent tip. And I just don't think that's okay. I've had to stop being friends with people who said to me that if, like, servers and bartenders don't like it, then get another job because they're not going to tip. And it's like, you're (laughs) – I just can't. Yeah. I just can't. (laughs) Okay. So – Food service jobs have grown nearly 50% over the past two decades to 12.2 million, according to the BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics. They are on track to surpass America's manufacturing workforce, which at 12.8 million has fallen 25% over the same period. Wow. I mean, I, I knew that like service industry was sort of taking over the economy, but that's pretty wild. Millions of workers are being left behind, especially during the pandemic. Yeah. It's it's insane. Um, so particularly the 4.4 million workers who rely on tips to earn a living, fully two-thirds of them women, even as wages have crept up slowly in other sectors of the economy, the minimum wage for servers and other tip workers hasn't budged since 1991. Indeed, there is an entirely separate federal minimum wage for those who live on tips. It varies by state from a low, as low as 213, and which is the federal tip minimum wage. In 17 states, including Texas, Nebraska, and Virginia, and up to $9.35 in Hawaii, in 36 states, the tip minimum wage is under five an hour. Legally, employers are supposed to make up the difference when tips don't get service to the minimum wage, but some, and I will say probably all of them, restaurants don't track this closely, and the law is rarely enforced. I've never waited tables and felt that they made up my minimum wage. So hosts, cooks, dishwashers, and busters all get the normal 725 minimum wage and are reliant on their checks 
Most states pay servers and bartenders close to the federal $2.13 figure because they are tipped employees. The servers and bartenders in the, the states that do this never see a paycheck because it's so small it gets eaten up by taxes. Therefore, mm-hmm. they only live off their tips. So if they get stiffed by a customer, the employee is essentially paying to wait on that customer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> States of note who pay their servers and bartender a living wage because they are getting 13 or 14 an hour in addition to their tips are California, Oregon, and Washington State, not D.C. In all the restaurants I've worked in, the um, bartenders and the servers would have to tip out, like, the buffers, maybe the hosts. And the dishwashers. So if you, mm-hmm. like, once again get stiffed, you are paying money that you didn't even make. Yeah, you have to give them each, like, 1% or 2%. Yeah. Maybe 3 if it's crazy. And then you got to pay to park. So, like, imagine getting stiffed a bunch, having to pay out, and then leaving with, like, 20 Like And happens. depending on where you work, if someone dine and dashes, which happens more than you think, you end up having to pay for that, too. Yeah. I would never, though. I would never do that. <laughs> People, they, they come, restaurants will comp stuff so easily. So, like, don't even try to take it out of my money. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> most restaurants do not offer health insurance that their employees can actually afford. So, other benefits are not included in the living wage of a restaurant employee here. Like when I mentioned California, Oregon, and Washington actually doing good. Um, but the employees here... So they're a little better off in these states than in their line of work than the other 47 states. Mm -hmm. Okay, on to the facts. The federal minimum wage was last raised on July 24, 2009, when it rose from $6.55 to $7.25, the last step of a three-step increase approved by Congress in 2007. Before 2007... (laughs) Yeah, it's very sad, and I don't know why people are even fighting about it. Okay, the the minimum wage has been stuck at $5.15 per hour for 10 years. Dude, I know because I had a child and had to try to support us both on $5.15 an hour. It is, I mean, that is, if you work 40 hours a week, which you and I know in a lot of retail environments doesn't happen anymore because also – Retailers don't want to pay you benefits, and if you work 40 hours a week, actually, I think it's like an average of more than 35 hours per week, they are required to offer you benefits like sick days, vacation, health insurance, that kind of stuff, so they will do anything they can. Like, when I was a department manager for a retail chain, I would be told, if someone's been working more than 30 hours a week for the past three weeks, this week you have to give them 10 hours so that we don't have to do this, and I would have to, like, make notes to myself to pull back on people's hours every four weeks so that they couldn't technically be full-time and therefore have access to benefits. But even if you're making working 40 hours a week and you're making $7.25 an hour, you're bringing home a little bit more than $280 before taxes. You're making less than $1,000 a month. How is someone supposed to live off of that? Yeah, and even nowadays, like we were mentioning before offline that, Let's say you even get 15 an hour and you happen to live in a state with like higher taxes that, and you work 40 hours a week, that paycheck after taxes ends up being like 400 bucks, maybe, maybe 300 mm-hmm. if you get paid like 12 or 13. So who can live off $1,200? No one can. No one can. 
Especially so if you live in a city, forget it. Because then your rent's like a thousand. So I know. Like, are you going to steal groceries because the SNAP isn't giving you enough? What are you going to do? Sit in line at a. What if you don't have a car and you can't go to a drive up food drive? I mean, I remember specifically a period in my life where after I paid rent and bills, I would be like, okay, I have $2 a day to spend before my next paycheck two weeks from now. So that means I can't afford to take the bus to work because it's $1.50 each way. So I'm going to have to ride my bike no matter what the weather is. And that means the only thing I can eat for lunch are these 50-cent cheese bagels from the grocery store and an orange. (laughs) Like, that's it. That's my whole day. And that is real, you know? And, like, pasta every night. And Yeah, yeah seriously. I, like, we were living on quesadillas. Yeah, yeah. It's still common. It and is, I, yeah. It, like, I want to cry thinking about how those people that were living like that pre-pandemic, the stress and trauma, like, of everything now. I mean, fast forward to a year later, and everything's run out. I want to talk about these things on the show because I have been there before where I, like I said, had $2 per day and couldn't afford to take the bus. And I'm going to be back there thanks to the pandemic. And many, many people who probably never had that life are also going to be there. The only people who can somehow live a good life and make minimum wage must come from generational wealth and have a safety net. And I would question, does anybody who's with a minimum wage job who's an adult come from generational wealth in the first place because why would they be there you know what i mean and the only way to build it is to like be able to buy houses and stuff like that and these will never most most people like will never be able to now like if they had a chance pre-pandemic it's gone now how many people have moved back in with their parents and it's like, i know we can't dig ourselves up so let's have a little palate cleanser okay from nancy pelosi a quote from i heard it on npr 1a so she said on January 6, 2007, the Senate and House passed the minimum wage 100 hours after the president was sworn in. The minimum wage hadn't increased in 11 years before that. I know I said it already, but I just want to drive home how long it's been. Yeah. If we don't keep chipping away at it, it's never going to get better. So Republicans are trying to get us to settle on 11 an hour. That is not going to be good enough. No. They're going to try to keep it in and get everyone on board with 11, but if not, they're taking it out in the Senate. They got through the House with $15 minimum wage, and another budget package or a standalone bill is the only other option, but they both will require 60 votes, which is a filibuster, and not 51, a simple majority. Mm-hmm. They will have to get it done by March 14th when the other pandemic relief is going to expire, and we shall get our 1,400 stimulus checks shortly thereafter. Yeah, I mean, I so that is basically why the minimum wage has been taken out of that bill. Because the other thing about this getting this bill through in a timely manner is that everybody who's been getting the extension benefits for unemployment, which is many, many people, will once again not have any benefits. We are coming up on the one-year anniversary of the sort of tsunami of unemployment that began in March of last year. And we're talking millions and millions of people who still don't have a job, myself included. There are four unemployed people for every one available job. Um, So people aren't getting jobs, right? I mean, there's just not enough. And what happened in December is, God, I can't believe Trump was once our president. Can I just say that? (laughs) such a shame. He refused to sign the CARES Act, which, among other things, extended unemployment. 
And so it expired one day before he signed it. And it messed up every computer system because all the unemployment computer systems in the U.S. are trash and from, like, the 80s. And all over the country, people like myself have seen a lapse in benefits. Like, I'm still theoretically supposed to be receiving money. I haven't in two months. And trust me, I'm just one of millions of people who are in the same boat. And it's really scary and frustrating. Uh, I'm lucky because Justin has a job. I have a really high uh, limit on my Amex, but I'm scared, you know, of what's going to happen next. So I understand why the, the minimum wage was taken out of that, that the, you know, whatever this update to the CARES Act is going to be, but I don't want people to forget about it because it has to happen. It needs its own. It needs its own. I so agree. The, the median net worth of Congress is $1 million. So it's like all these people – and then just to um, shame the two Democrat, the two Democratic senators who voted against it, Kurt Schrader of Oregon, his boo, and Jared Golden of Maine, the bill passed in the House at 219 to 212. Jesus. Makes me so remember angry. them if you live in Oregon and Maine. Yes, remember, remember them. Remember that. Like, this is not a joke. We are a year into this, and, like, even the most prepared responsible person is running out of savings. You know what I mean? And the majority of the jobs that are going to pop up as the recovery begins are going to be minimum wage. Plenty of people who never thought they had to worry about the minimum wage before are going to be having jobs that are pay a minimum wage. So everyone's got some skin in the game here. Support increasing the minimum wage. Tell everyone you know. When you hear people starting to talk about how the robots are going to take our jobs and the touch screens at McDonald's are proof, please debunk that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to we have to the future of our country and of so many people depends on it thank you for having me thanks again for talking to me about this gabriella and by the way it is georgia where the minimum wage is five fifteen an hour which if you work 40 hours in a week is a little bit more than 200 dollars a week before taxes so we're talking like 800 dollars a month how is someone expected to live off of that I hope all of you will not only feel ready to debunk misinformation about the minimum wage that you encounter across social media and IRL, like when someone shows you that photo of the touch screen at McDonald's as proof, <laughs> but you'll also feel motivated to reach out to your senator and representative to tell them that raising the minimum wage is important to you. I understand why it was dropped from the pandemic relief bill. It needed to be because Everybody's going to lose their benefits in another week if if it isn't signed. But it needs to be brought back into the legislative agenda. It's not hyperbole to say that raising the minimum wage is a human rights issue. So let's make it happen. Also, we talked about unemployment in our convo, and I might do a special segment about it in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, I recommend checking out the most recent episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. I'm a mega fan, to hear more about how our unemployment system became so broken. It will, like a lot of stuff we talk about around here, make you really angry. I can't believe this, but this is the last part of my conversation with Tia and Rebecca of Old Flame Mending. You know, I've mentioned this before, but when I'm editing an interview, 
I'll often feel as if I've been talking to someone for days and days, even though it's just me and my laptop and occasionally Brenda. So it feels like I've been hanging out with Tia and Rebecca for like weeks now. It's going to be so strange to not hear them in the coming days. It's kind of sad, right? I'm just so grateful that they took the time to talk with me. It was almost four hours of recording, which is a pretty major commitment. I'm so lucky that amazing people like them want to take that time to talk to me. So let's get into that last part of the conversation. So I know all the sewing nerds want to know about the machines you use. All right. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Who wants to, like, get up and, like, grab a drink? (laughs) Yeah, I'm just going to, like, put my head down on my desk and just tell me when you're done. No, kidding. (laughs) All right. So here's the thing. When people know that you sew... Um, there's like two <laughs> things that they tend to like want to talk to you about. One of them is just like asking you to do like every related sewing project that they have in mind that they've like dreamt up, whether it's something that you're really like capable of or not at all capable of. Um, and then the second thing they want to do and like talk about is like this like old sewing machine that's like in their basement, and it was like my great aunt's. And I don't know if it works, and I don't know what brand it is, but, like, do you want it? Um, (laughs) So it has been, like, extremely easy for us to both, like, just accumulate sewing machines. Um, Yeah, I mean, I feel like pretty much every sewing machine I have is, like, it's, like, secondhand. Um, My first love was a machine I bought in 2009 from a sewing machine repairist on eBay. Um, it's a Singer 401A, Slantomatic, and they were manufactured in the 50s, and they were sold from 1957 to 1961, and I, when I was, like, kind of thinking about the sewing machines that I have and, like, doing a little bit of research for this podcast, I, um, learned that it's a collectible sewing machine. Um, wow. No idea. Like I just kind of like did a quick Google search when I was like looking for a sewing machine when I was younger and it just kind of came up and I was like, okay. Um, but I used it in college and I still use it for most of the um, mending that I get today. Um, it can go through almost anything um, with the right needle, which we can talk about later. And it has just the right amount of settings without being overly complicated, um, mm-hmm. which is like really, it can be like such a weird balance sometimes when like choosing a sewing machine. Cause like you want something that's like really user friendly, but like you also want something that's like, you know, can like do a few things. Um, and I also love that it, also, it has almost all iron and metal parts. Um, a lot of newer sewing machines are made of plastic, which not only makes them lighter, but like less sturdy. It also makes them more prone to breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, that's not good and not fun, especially when it's, you know, like if you're buying a sewing machine, you don't have a ton of experience. It can be like really frustrating when the machine's parts are breaking. 
Yeah, that's terrible. (laughs) Yeah. So I like always tell people to buy a vintage singer from the 50s to the 70s because they're going to be user friendly. They're going to be sturdy and they're going to be easy to find parts for. I would also recommend buying a machine from someone who services sewing machines. Um, So it's like just ready to go out of the box. Because this mm-hmm. will save so much frustration. Like, <laughs> like, even if, like, the tension's off or it's, like, not oiled, um, you know, you don't want to have to, like, go take it to, like, a service person and fi- get it figured out or, like, spend, like, hours just, like, messing with settings, trying to figure out what's going wrong. Um, so... Um, I actually recently came across another Singer 401A. It's like almost exactly the same as the one that I had at a thrift store. And I just like, I like couldn't believe my eyes. I was like so giddy from the thrill of finding one and it was only $10. Um, so I like, I didn't think twice before buying it and um it like definitely you know wasn't as in good condition as like my original singer 401a was um it like needs oiled and it just like doesn't run as well but I'm trying to like get that all worked out because it is nice having one at my studio and then one at my house um so yeah it's like a really special find if you like ever find a singer singer 401a like I really recommend getting it because it's just like I just think it's, like, so special. (laughs) It does seem like, too, um, eBay can be a really good resource for finding a sewing machine. Yeah. There's just so many on there. Like, people are just making their living, like, finding them and fixing them up, I swear. Yeah. Yeah, It's kind of my dream one day. (laughs) Pickup only. Have to drive to meet me. But I would love, like, to get into the machine dealing world. That's pretty cool. I feel like this is just based on when I was shopping for a sewing machine a few months ago that it's a male dominated market. So I'd love to see you get in there and change it. Step aside, boys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's just like so many unwanted old sewing machines out there. Like there are thrift stores that like have signs that say we don't take sewing machines. Like And I mean, every house used to have a sewing machine back in the day, but it's just not something that people really have in their houses anymore. Um, There was another singer that I got that my mom just kind of like pawned off on me. It was, I don't know where she, it was like someone was like getting rid of it and she was like, oh, I'll take it. But then was like, oh, I actually don't want this. And then... She was like, do you want it? And I was like, oh, it's a singer from the 70s. Absolutely. So um, I took it and I got it rewired. And it's a little bit more basic, but it's like, yeah, it it really also just does the job. It's a workhorse. Um, I also have another, I have a fourth <laughs> singer. Um it's, it's a big industrial singer. It's called a 281-1. And um, it was this um, one, it was from this woman who was a textile artist and she was downsizing and um, yeah, she was like, I like, can't keep this. So I like went and got it. It has like a big like tank for like, or like a tray. and. It was like kind of messy to move because oil was kind of overflowing, <laughs> and 
yeah, it was just, it's like really, really heavy also. Um, but it's nice because it, you know, you can really like sew through anything on that. Like I've sewn through like, yeah, like, um, oh, what's it called? Like those like handles that are on like a canvas bag. Oh, like webbing or something? Yeah, webbing. Mm-hmm. I've sewn two layers of that plus a layer of canvas and it was like no problem at all. Um so that's cool. Tia also has an industrial machine that she just came into. <laughs> um, yeah, we're really expanding here, but I'll get to my part later. <laughs> I mean, already I feel like you guys need like a whole warehouse for just all your sewing stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're yeah, we're starting to grow out of our space already. Um okay, so we've got a we've got a brother 103. 3-4-D serger, which is, like, really common. It's not, like, excellent quality, but it, like, really gets the job done. It comes in handy. Um, I also have this, like, really, like, not great brother sewing machine. It's, like, one of the cheaper models. Um, again, like, secondhand buy. Um, it has some fun settings that I, like, use for, like, special things sometimes, but um, I've, I have a Husqvarna Viking, like a beginner machine. Um, and like this model is pretty basic. I think it's like kind of for like kids or teens, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. It's like, we're just like so dorky when it comes to like sewing machines. Like we just like kind of want to like experience all of them. So I was like, Oh, like I've like never <laughs> tried this Viking before. Like I would love to just like get my hands on it. Um, and, like, there are a lot of sewists who are just, like, diehard Husqvarna Viking fans. And I can really just see why. Because it's a really simple Scandinavian design. And it's, like, super user-friendly. And it's intentionally designed. And there's, like, little compartments for everything. So I think, like, if people are looking for a machine and they really love minimalism and, like, Scandinavian design it's like a really good option. Um, oh, and then I have one <laughs> machine that I have never sewn with. Um, but it's like just so pretty. It's a it's a pink Atlas machine, which is like it's a now defunct brand, but um, it's from I think the early fifties. Um, the wiring is insane, so I've like never even plugged it in. Um, <laughs> But it's just like this like beautiful dusty millennial pink and it's just like just so elegantly shaped. I just love looking at it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are my all seven. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what about what about you, Tia? What do you have like 13? <laughs> you know what? Surprisingly, I guess I have less than Rebecca right now. I will say that right now. We're always neck and neck. <laughs> yeah, I I did downsize a little bit recently, but um, I mean, similar to Becca, I also trust older Singer machines. Um, I have a, I think it's 1960s, like Singer Spartan. It's similar to what a featherweight looks like, which if you know sewing like sewing machines it's similar in style it's cast iron and it's like beautiful jet black um shiny and it has this little antique power motor which just sounds so cute and (laughs) 
I mean, I can only do a straight stitch, but it's so fun to use and it aesthetically looks really cool. So like I'll pull it out if I want to like, you know, just like gram a little bit or like if it's snowing and the, <laughs> it feels right. I'll, I'll bust it out. But, um, I, I do mainly use a, it's called a Juki TL 2000 QI and it's like my first big new machine that I, I treated myself to. I don't know if, like, if you remember earlier, I said I had the same machine for like, I don't know, 10, 12 years. So I was willing to invest in a machine that I knew, would, you know, last me uh, just as long, if not longer. Uh-huh. And this machine is so nice. It sews through cotton and denim, like butter. It's not too loud. It's so smooth and it's nice and heavy too. So I know it's not going to like tip over when I'm working on my denim or really anything like large. So it's really a reliable machine. I highly suggest Juki if you're able to throw down a little bit more money on a, like a, on your everyday machine. Um, I have a couple basic singers that I like, I don't like to admit this, but I did buy that Singer Heavy Duty machine. It's gray. You've probably seen it, like, everywhere. <laughs> they were, like, they were on sale, I think, like, in the last year for, like, 100 or 100 dollars, oh, $150. Yes. <laughs> and I really didn't want to do it. I was, like, talking to so many people on Craigslist about these machines, but, like, no one was getting back to me in time, and I'm so impatient that I was, like... <laughs> I need a machine. I need it now. I'm going to get it. Um, so I don't, I'm not proud of them, but I will say that it's very reliable. If I need to do a zigzag stitch, I use that and it's nothing, it's not flashy. I don't bring it to the studio. Um, (laughs) so it's kind of just like my home machine when I want to just, you know, get something done. Um, my aunt also gave me like another older singer embroidery machine that does like 80 stitches that I'll probably never use. <laughs> but it's there. And I guess my, my big one that I recently purchased is a, it's a Conso 207. It's a darning machine and it's industrial. It has like a cylinder arm and no feed dogs. So it's ideal for denim mending because you can put the pant leg down this like tube And then you kind of like grip the arm and you kind of like make a rocking motion with your hands, kind of like rolling a burrito together. And it's just like a free motion mend. And it's really fun to use. It's kind of scary right now. I'm like getting used to it, but um, it's going to be a great machine for us. And um, I recently had my dad help me like build an extender piece for it, which these machines aren't really, they're hard to find. So these extension pieces cost like $500 on eBay. And I would have to be buying it from like Denmark or somewhere international. So like shipping's like, you know, another arm. So um, thankfully my dad um, is also pretty crafty and handy. So he kind of like whittled one out of wood. Wow. It's beautiful. That's amazing. (laughs) Uh, Mr. Tuminello like did such an amazing job. <laughs> I like, guess so. I really like 
it's so smooth. Like he like yeah. sanded it and like waxed it. Yeah, it's he's it's a shiny. Virgo, so like it's it's to the T perfect. <laughs> um, and it just yeah, it just like screws onto the piece fine and it really helps the denim motion and I'm just so thankful that like I'm able to have it and it's really a dream come true. So that's really my like my new baby is the Conso 207. Look it up, you know, send me a DM if you want to talk about it. I love to talk about it. <laughs> and, um, I guess my last one that it's not in working condition right now, but it's a 1920s Wilcox and Gibbs. It's a chain stitch machine, but it's not used for like, like these new embroidery uh, chain stitch machines. It's more so for like chain stitch hems, like on denim or like sleeves on shirts. Mm-hmm. But these machines are really cool looking. It's shaped like a G. Um, hence the Gibbs. I think he was a farmer from the Shenandoah Valley. Um, but I would recommend a quick Google search into this machine. It's really interesting. And I really want it to get it up and running so we can start offering uh, change stitch uh, as like a denim hem option. So I guess all in all, I only have six machines. And <laughs> it's not a competition. But we have three at the studio. So it's really, it's not too bad. But <laughs> well, what are your favorite things you've worked on? <laughs> well, I mean, I do like working on these like stuffed animals. Um, <laughs> I think it's your calling. I could see you. You're going to like open a stuffed animal hospital. You yes. know, I weirdly thought about that. It's like I thought about <laughs> dolls. Like I was like that weirdo that wanted to make dolls at a point, like plush animals. Um, <laughs> like when those ugly dolls came out in, in like 2010 or something, like I was really all about it. And I would go to Joanne's because they had so much fleece and I would buy the remnants and um like oh I'm being resourceful I'm using the remnants and I'm making this like plush doll like I'm in college Wait, what is an ugly doll I'm like not aware of it's that. a brand of like plush dolls you may have seen them at like hot topic um but they look quote unquote ugly because like <laughs> or maybe they have like a scar or oh. they're kind of like monster dolls okay. yeah that's a good way to describe it like an invader zim aesthetic it's very similar to invader zim yeah okay it's yeah i i like the idea of a plush doll i would say i'm not into that brand like that was never my thing i wanted to be like cool and cute about it um so there is like a weird part of me still that like when someone gives us like a plush animal or like a three you know 3d figure doll thing i get like kind of excited to work on it and like restuff it and like give it little life back i think that's yeah, I don't mind doing that. I think it's kind of fun. Um, I do really enjoy like getting quilts and some of these like heirloom projects are just like, just so touching. And it mm-hmm. kind of, like, you, you know, it warms my like cold heart. So it, working on those um, just like, yeah, it brings me back down to like why I'm here in the first place and why I started the business. And I, I really like to work on heirloom pieces. Um, but really like denim repair I think will always be my favorite thing to work on because it's challenging and 
and encourages me to like be a better mender and textile artist. I just like learning more about it. I like learning about denim. I like, you know, I weirdly reached out to a lot of people on Instagram when I bought the console 207 because I had some issues with it. And I really find like, I just really like the denim community. Um, and yeah, every time we get to work on denim, I just find it as like, how can I do better than last time? And how can I like learn from that? Mm-hmm. I really love working on a piece that has a story behind it. Um, and like people just tell us stories all the time about the pieces they bring to us. Um, I think I mentioned that before. Um, and I think that just speaks to the importance of only buying pieces that are special to you mm-hmm. and things that you're going to want to keep around and like, mm-hmm. Yeah, pay to get mended. Maybe like a good rule of thumb when you're buying something new is to be like, if this got a hole in it, what would I do? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is like throw it away, then you probably shouldn't buy it. Yeah. I mean, valid point. <laughs> you know, imagine imagine thinking about things that way, you know? I yeah, I feel like we're nowhere near there as an as a society, but like <laughs> maybe someday. I did work on a sweater repair recently um and our client who brought it in she had bought it in Ireland when she was doing study abroad in the early 90s like she she still wears it 30 years later and like it had like it had a lot of holes in it um I think I ended up spending like close to like I don't know like four or five hours on it and um when she but like when she brought it in she was like getting like really nostalgic about her time in Ireland which was just like so touching like she had Mm -hmm. just like I don't know you could just see it in her eyes like she was just like remembering all these things about being in Ireland and being young and experiencing new things and like meeting new people and just these like zany little adventures she went on and how she ended up with this sweater and um I just think it really speaks to how clothing and textiles are just a really powerful part of the human experience and that's something that's constantly reinforced to us I think Mm -hmm. in our business like how many times has someone come and been like this is like something that's really special to me like please take care of it and then we like give it back to them and they're like really excited that this thing is able to like keep going yeah I mean it's amazing you know I think that also just by offering these services to people you open their eyes to the idea that we can hold on to things and that they can have a longer life than we would imagine. Like once again, just goes back to that idea of we need to separate ourselves from this idea that so many things are disposable. Yeah. Yeah. We want people to know and remember that clothing is not disposable. Like it's, it's a lie and it's dangerous. Um, It's a dangerous mindset to have when shopping. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I guarantee like, everyone has something that they value in their closet. Like they know that it's not disposable and yet we shop like as if the other garments are or something. And I don't know, I would like to rethink what's possible out of designers as well. And just like 
push for more upcycling and creative reuse brands, take a chance, start a business, like just do it. Um, (laughs) I don't know who started the stigma around like shopping at secondhand boutiques or thrift stores, but it just needs to stop. Like, yeah, Uh, I know. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if like in a couple years, some like investigative reporter comes out with a story where they're like, you know, the biggest, the biggest retail companies in America were paying for a secret underground whisper campaign to stigmatize secondhand clothing. Because I swear it's like everything else that I uncover working on clothes source, it turns out it was part of a scheme, you know, to like get people to buy more stuff. So like, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Come on, uh, Gen Z, like, <laughs> save us. Please. Because I do think that, like, one thing everyone I talk to has in common is that when we were kids, only, like, poor people shopped at, like, the thrift store. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how there was such a stigma attached to it. And I think we've worked really hard to undo that. But there are still plenty of people who think it's disgusting. Yeah to buy used clothing, which I don't, it's like, have you ever heard of a washing machine? I, people also like doubt themselves. Like I wear mainly secondhand thrifted items and people are like, oh, you're so good at thrifting. Like I could never find these things. And I'm like, you probably could. I mean, <laughs> if you know, like what brands you like or what fabric content you like, like it's there. And I think that just speaks to know that like, people I don't know it's like I feel like I don't know it's like when you walk into a target like you know that like whatever you grab off the rack is going to be like a socially acceptable thing to wear or something Uh uh it's like fear of like embarrassment or something if you like yeah it's like people just like doubting themselves that like the choices that they would make for themselves when it's like Mm more random like isn't going to be like a good choice or something yeah no I think you're onto something there because there's so much like fear attached to dressing for so many people that there's I mean and and to be fair I don't know about you but I was made fun of relentlessly from my clothes from like seventh grade on. And, you know, I guess I've developed thick skin about it over a time. I mean, I'll still go somewhere sometimes. I'm like an adult, you know what I mean? And there's always some dude who's like, hey, it's not Halloween. <laughs> like, yeah. what? Oh my God. It's like every time I go back to my hometown, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like sometimes I'll just get these weird, like, look up and downs or something oh and like, totally I don't really dress like super flashy or crazy but I'm just like oh it's because like I'm not like wearing like the same mm. thing that like a lot of other people are wearing like I'm just like weirdly like standing out in this way that might seem like a little bit intangible to the person who's like staring but they're kind of just like I know there's like something like amiss here and I can't quite put my finger on it or something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. definitely definitely and so for so many people and I mean I even hear this from friends of mine like they've definitely had times where they're like I feel so discouraged Mm. by the act of not dressing like everyone else that I give it up Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. there are people who haven't even experienced that but have witnessed it and that is enough to make them afraid. And I guess I would just say, you know, I think they're also, if you're not, 
if you're not like us and a lot of our friends and sort of the community we exist within, you know, thrift shopping does seem really intimidating. Like, how could you ever possibly find things? And it must be luck of the draw. And yes, to a certain extent, it, it is sometimes. But I feel the same way about shopping for new stuff because <laughs> – more often than not, if I'm like, oh, I need this specific thing, brand new, I cannot find it, mm. you know, because like the focus of like what, like places like Madewell or I mean, really any, any mass market retailer, the scope of what they sell has become smaller and smaller over time because everybody's just kind of selling the same thing. So if you don't like off the shoulder tops, well, then you're not getting a new shirt, you know? Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like even just like certain colors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That is so true too. I would like to see my personal hopes and dreams just to see a shift towards um, the way we shop because clearly it's it's not a good path that we're on. It's not mm -hmm. sustainable. Um, so if you're able to take the time to thrift or take a chance at a secondhand store, I would say try it, especially if you just have that shopping bug. Um, just consider taking a little bit more responsibility. Ideally, I think we all need to be held a little bit more accountable stores and consumers with how we've been shopping um, and more awareness about textile waste would really just benefit us all. Mm -hmm. yeah. Also just more like, I mean, I think that like pers like people like personally changing their habits is great. I mean, this is like the same thing as recycling, right? Like there are certain things that like you can do as an, an individual, but then there's also like stuff like policies at like mm -hmm. a, a corporate level or on a government level. Um, I just think about like how like social and environmental justice is so closely linked and that's like a whole other conversation, but I think it just can like be really frustrating because like, these aren't, this isn't just like something that's better. Like this is like the earth's health and then like also like people's lives at stake. Like mm -hmm. it just feels so urgent to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like really frustrating how like so much more needs to be done at like mm -hmm. a much more rapid speed, but not enough is happening. And like, the things that are changing just don't seem to be changing quickly enough. Like mm -hmm. we just like, you can like listen to speeches from activists from over 50 years ago on YouTube. And like some of the things they're saying are like the same issues that we're still having in 2020. And we're still not doing enough to take care of the earth, even though like we've been aware of this for so long. And yeah, yeah we, it just needs to all become like more mainstream and like mm -hmm. just more, ingrained but like yeah it's like how do you like you can't like change a culture overnight but I know but it is it's so frustrating it's like you said these conversations have been going on for decades mm -hmm. and in some ways the that information has been blocked by larger corporate interests from getting to most people's ears but mm -hmm. there are people who have known this whole time too and have been willfully sort of oblivious you know yeah so yeah. it, the time is now to change it. And it, it is not easy because like I've talked about before, we've been kind of trained to want to buy lots of stuff since we were kids. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's beyond a habit for us, you know? 
Yeah. Mm. And I think it's just like our responsibility and everyone who's listening to this podcast in general, like we know better. And I think we just have to be advocates and just try to tell people, like inform them why it's Mm -hmm. wrong. A lot of people don't understand why it's wrong. So Mm -hmm. like once you just start informing them and like it all starts to like click together, um, I just think it's great. You just have to keep it going. Yeah. And that's like, that is one thing I really love about this home ending, like (laughs) not to like kind of keep bringing it back to us or anything, but like if you like wear something that's like been patched or something, then like someone's going to notice that, you know, if it's in like a fun, crazy color, like a contrasting fabric. Um, and it just kind of normalizes it, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what we need to do. We need to normalize secondhand. We need to normalize mending. And I feel, I feel like this is starting to pick up momentum. And even mm-hmm. like on the retail side, more and more businesses are trying to get into the secondhand game because they see that's the direction it's going. Of course, yeah. their intentions are not pure, you know? So yeah. they're going to like wrap it all up in plastic and do other dumb shit with it. But... <laughs> Just the fact that, like, big mainstream brands are, like, Mm -hmm. dipping their toe into secondhand, it says something about this way of life, this awareness, really picking up momentum. But you're right. Like, you need to tell anyone who will listen. I think that's, like, what I would like to see in our business. Like, I would like to keep, like, that conversation open, and I would like to be used for like educational purposes. I would like to keep inspiring other people who are interested in learning how to like maybe change their shopping habits or how to like get more involved in, I don't know, creative reuse. I think like we're here as a service for the clothes, but also as a service for the the community. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it would be great to like, you know, one day really open up old flame into maybe like community outreach or have like, you know, workshop programs, um, just like keep building community, keep building creative ways to change. And, you know, who knows, maybe we'll grow into like a larger studio one day with windows. Yes. That would be nice. <laughs> yes. Windows <laughs> in our studio right now. It, oh. it, it feels like a casino. Like <laughs> you come in when the sun's out, and then you leave when it's dark, and you like don't know what time it is. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> but it's actually like it's good when you have a lot of work to get done. You just like power through. But yeah, I would like to see old flame mending. Like I would like to see us grow, and obviously we gotta financially support ourselves. But you know, we're on the, like the right track for now you mentioned that you thought it would be cool to start and i'm obsessed with this idea so i want you to talk about it and upcycled halloween costume line because yeah yeah, talk about that because i don't get me started just talk about it (laughs) i okay so we know how the how the halloween costume market is like it is fast fashion they just pump out those costumes They're yeah. like worse fabric. Um, they people donate them or throw them away like the next day. They're really expensive, and I feel so bad for parents whose like kids want that <laughs> weird costume uh-huh, for like, uh-huh. and you know they're not going to want to wear it next year. So I I really like making costumes. Obviously, I, I have like weird niches. Um, so I really like the idea of maybe like starting 
an upcycled Halloween line and like again using like thrifted upcycled materials to make um costumes that people would be interested for like yeah for the Halloween season and maybe it's not super costumey maybe you can wear it other times of the year I mean I I love that I guess talk about eco-anxiety again I get so much of that around Halloween when I go to the store and I see just like go to a Target at Halloween and the aisles and aisles stuffed full of these horrible costumes and I feel like I don't see as many of them at the thrift store as I used to so I'm afraid they get thrown out oh god they probably do yeah yeah they're made like I saw something like a a recent Halloween costume and it was made of like very old kind of like dry styrofoam. So like, it's not going to last if you try to sell it. Like they're these costumes are not being made to last. No, no. But I will say that, you know, one thing that these costumes always have in common is like they're really Mm -hmm. horrible fabric, especially like the weird faux suedes and velvets. And what has frightened me is in the last few years, I have seen that quality of fabric in fast fashion. Oh my god, that is such I, a good point. Like, like the faux suede, especially. Oh, oh, that stuff like gives me the heebie-jeebies. I know, I know. It's my least favorite. <laughs> oh, oh my god, Tia, do you remember? We had like just sort of like started becoming friends. We were at Whole Foods oh. one day, and there's like a Goodwill right down the street from our Whole Foods that we were working at, and. I remember it was like it was like lunch break time for you and like sometimes we would like take our lunch breaks together and you were like hey I'm going on my lunch break I can't hang today because I have to go to Goodwill and get my Halloween costume and I was like can you like even do that in 30 minutes and you were like oh I can do it and like put together this like I think you were a lava lamp that year I was a lava lamp yeah wow. and you just like whipped it up like so wow fast. that is really impressive so impressive <laughs> I was just like damn like that's yeah. amazing <laughs> so what about you Rebecca like what are your astrological signs all throughout this um I just want to come out and say I'm a Leo I'm a Sagittarius she is a Sagittarius so we've got two fire signs going and that can be like really great because like we just like fire each other up yeah. Um, yeah but like yeah I definitely have like the Leo pride thing going on so I'm just like this thing like our business cannot fail <laughs> <laughs> I hear you on that. I am also a Leo. I understand that. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah, you feel me. Um, I'm just like, I just want to fight tooth and nail to like keep it going and like, just also just deliver our customers a good experience. Um, it's just been something I like want to strive for is just like, yeah, like not embarrassing myself because like I gave someone a bad experience or something. Um, And it's just been like also really fulfilling to connect with other people who are working in or interested in sustainable fashion um, here in Pittsburgh, but like also beyond Pittsburgh. Um, I think that we're just in some like 
really like interesting and like particular intersections of a few things like we're like fashion but we're like fibers like a lot of our stuff is like kind of informed by like just like craft and like fiber content and like we're both like we both have like an, a background in art um and like the things that we do are really custom so like it kind of is an art um mm-hmm. but we're also like you know we're very much like in sustainability and like that's like our our driving energy um but then like we also like do a lot of stuff like vintage and heirloom stuff and then because like we do pop up at the farmer's market and there are like there yeah there is just like such like a close correlation between yeah like clothing and food like they're two like pretty basic needs um I feel like there are like just some intersections with like farming and food justice and like social justice. So there's just so many things that inform our business practice. And I just want to keep just like exploring that and just like keep like gassing other people up and figuring out ways to collaborate with others. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, I want to give another shout out to our friend Meg Chalu. Hi, Meg. <laughs> <laughs> Meg is she's an owner she's the owner of scavenger vintage here in Pittsburgh and she's also a fellow clothes horse and she's actually the one who introduced us to this pod Yay. Um, so it's like cool though because like Meg is like really into fashion and she's one of our biggest cheerleaders and she's also our go-to person when people ask us if we can do a custom dye job for them um and like dyeing is something like dyeing fabric is something that Tia and I are both like fully capable of doing, but I'm also learning that I can't say yes to everything all the time. So mm-hmm. it's just been like really cool having people with skills to yeah. call on for things that our customers need. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just like making like, yeah, like connection with like other businesses and other people who are really talented to, kind of just like help us keep our business going. Um, I think my dream is to just like grow to the point where we can like have some people like working for us, maybe even some sort of like apprenticeship program because I just really love like sharing knowledge um, and I love learning. So I would dream about going to Italy someday Aww. or like <laughs> France or something and just like. Me too. Yeah. Like we should do that. I just want to like learn from like a really the best yeah like I want to learn from like an experienced tailor who like really knows their stuff and like yeah I don't know like old tailors tend to be like really crabby but (laughs) (laughs) it's true though why is it so true I don't know (laughs) they can be so crabby and like so just like crotchety about like what they're like willing to do and like like, Uh put you in your place but like I think like it would be like mm-hmm. a really like good learning experience to learn from someone like that because they're like perfectionists. Um, oh my gosh, for sure, for sure, it'd be incredible. Yeah, like I'm like okay, you might make me cry a few times, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but yeah, those are all like bigger long term goals. I think for now, my main goal is to just like continue the slow and steady growth and just be able to like. We're both working other jobs, so it would be mm-hmm. nice to be able to just do this full time and, yeah, just have one job would be yeah. cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
you two are getting me so hyped up on Pittsburgh. I can't wait to come for a visit. There just seems like there's so much cool stuff happening there. Well, and we're not that far away from you, really. No, no. Like what? Like maybe like maybe the three hour drive or something. Yeah. We really want to come to Bird in Hand. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We're totally going to have like a closed horse conference here as soon as everyone's vaccinated. Don't worry. I'm like hoping like it would be amazing if everybody could be vaccinated by fall because fall out here Mm -hmm. is incredible. I'm sure it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And there's just like so much to do and see. And there's like a lot like incredible thrifting as I've mentioned. So I can't, (laughs) I can't speak highly enough of it. You know, when we moved here, we weren't really sure how it was going to go because we've lived in the city our whole adult lives. But uh, if we can't move back to the West Coast, this is a great place to be, you know. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, I love it out here. I'm imagining like really like top-notch apple butter. (laughs) Oh, for sure. All the butters. You name it. They've got them. Pear butter, we have it. Pumpkin, Mm -hmm. we've got it. I'm so many like wild baked goods and jams of all varieties and cheeses. Cheeses. We're ready. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as everyone's vaccinated, the conference is happening. Awesome. I live near multiple motels and bed and breakfasts too. So like everybody could be really close by. It'll be amazing. Perfect. <laughs> well, it was so nice to talk to you ladies. This is definitely going to be like a three-part episode. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like very little to cut out, which is great. You know, people are going to be really excited and they're going to learn so much. <laughs> good thank you so much yeah thank you amanda have a good night yeah thank you so much well it feels like the end of an era now that this interview is finally finished (laughs) you can find tia and rebecca on instagram at old flame mending and at oldflamemending.com. and don't forget you can also send your garments into them for repair. I did that. I'm so stoked on my dress. They made it better than it was brand new. And if you're lucky enough to live in Pittsburgh, you can see them IRL because farmer's market season is beginning soon. Thank you again, Tia and Rebecca, for sharing your expertise with all of us. Now, everyone, go out and find yourself a 70s Singer sewing machine. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. You know, it like pushes us up some charts or recommendations or something. It games the algorithm and it means more people find Close Horse and start listening. And of course, tell your friends because that's like the best way, right? (laughs) To spread anything. It's just to tell everyone you know. If you're interested in supporting my work on Close Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash Close Horse Podcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. You know, thank you to all of you who support Close Horse and me, whether it's via cash money or leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts or just recommending it to your friends. All of this stuff is so meaningful and so impactful, and it's the fuel that keeps me going even during Vegan Leather Week. All of your support also just allows me to hopefully someday make Close Horse my real, actual paying job. You make my dream feel so much closer. So thank you. Thank you to all of you. Don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. 
And every Friday, I'm doing an Instagram Live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time where I'll update you about blog stuff and answer your questions about this week's episodes or really anything else. If you missed last Friday's, I came in full geriatric Lolita garb. We had a great time. I don't even know what I'm going to wear this week. Like, how am I going to top that? I really need to think this one through. (laughs) Anyway, be there or be square. We've been having a pretty good time, so you should check it out. Also, if you want to meet other Clothes Horse listeners, join the Clothes Horsing Around Facebook group. I'll share the link in the show notes. And of course, clotheshorse.world is live and real. And just churning out some of the best content I've seen on the internet in a really long time. Remember, it's the first blog by the community for the community featuring, that's right, the community. (laughs) Let's change what good style and a good life means for the rest of the world. We need your submissions to do that. You can send your idea to submissions at clotheshorse.world. It doesn't need to be a first draft. It doesn't even need to be like a long discourse about what you think you might want to do. Just a couple sentences about an idea you have is a good way to get the ball rolling. You can also check out the contribute page on the website. Uh, There are a bunch of easy breezy forms there for sending your submissions to us. We want your outfit repeats, your thrifty finds, your DIY projects, your life experiences, all of it. Share it with the rest of the community because everyone wants to see it. Well, we've now come to the point in every episode where I remind you of my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend, Kim. We talk about trends. We've been really into the 2000s for most of this year so far. We're still going strong. Our most recent episode is about some of the magazines that really mobilized and defined the hipsters of the auths. So go check it out. I'll share a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks as always to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.